AI basically is, I would actually say it's it's a mindset as well as a sort of necessary understanding of the technical implications of how we are designing, developing, deploying, and operationalizing AI and AI-enabled capabilities. Welcome back to the CyberStream podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Mandel. This week, I am so excited to be joined by Jacqueline Tame. Jacqueline is a national security advisor at Calypso AI, and previously she served as the deputy director and inaugural chief performance officer of the Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, or the Jake. Jacqueline is so sharp and I think is one of the most eloquent experts in the field of ethical and responsible AI policy, and I am so thrilled to welcome her to the podcast today. I'm also joined by Calypso AI's Chief of Staff and my co-host, Alexandra Seymour. Alexandra previously served as the speechwriter to the Deputy Secretary of Defense and as Senior Advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Counter-Narcotics and Global Threats. In the conversation that you're about to hear, we discuss how the Department of Defense is really leading in the responsible AI space. Only a few weeks ago, the Deputy Secretary of Defense released a memorandum outlining a roadmap for the department to pursue responsible AI. The memo reaffirms the DOD's 2020 ethical AI principles, and as one of Dr. Hicks' first actions as Deputy SecDef, it really signals a continued commitment to the responsible and ethical implementation of artificial intelligence across the defense and national security community in a way that really transcends administrations and political partisanship. Jacqueline walks us through the memo and what it means for the department. We also discuss her experience within the Jake and what signals she will be looking out for from the Biden administration and from Congress as the DOD begins to implement these tenets of ethical and responsible AI. So Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So... You recently wrote a, a blog post um, on Calypso AI's website on responsible AI about the DevSecDef's recently released um, RAI memo. Yep. Give us just a broad overview. What is responsible AI? And can you explain a little bit about the difference between the terms sort of bias, ethical, explainable, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, so this is a really important question to me um, and one that we've been grappling with within the Department of Defense, obviously, uh, which I recently uh, you know, left, and also that I know that a lot of different industry partners, academic partners, and, and, and our international partners are also grappling with. So it's a great time to sort of have this discussion. Um, responsible AI basically is... Um, I would actually say it's it's a mindset as well as a sort of necessary understanding of the technical implications of how we are designing, developing, deploying, and operationalizing AI and AI-enabled capabilities. Um, you can think of this in terms of right sort of military applications, which is obviously where I just came from. You know, big autonomy systems. The sort of you know a lot of people go straight to the kind of killer robot applications, which is a you know, it's a it's a it's a necessary, but it's it's sort of a, a nuanced and, and kind of dangerous conversation to have because I think it's really overhyped 
um, at least right now, given where we are technologically and given where we are, you know, in terms of our thought process. But the, but the important part is that we're actually really thinking about this sort of umbrella term of responsible AI, right, which encompasses the terms that you just kind of asked about, bias. You know, how are you designing the systems um, to ensure that you are not inadvertently biasing the results that you get um, in, in your models? Are you thinking about, and sort of a, a really interesting example comes to mind for me, um, are you thinking about, you know, let's just say you're doing something in terms of um, human resources, kind of like hiring, right? Something kind of innocuous like hiring um, or recruiting. When you are feeding, you know, the, the data and the test data into to, to your model, are you ensuring that you're not sort of over-indexing on a certain type of, of information such that the algorithms ultimately only identify that information at the end? For example, um, you know, if you look at, I'm just going to take a, a public case study, if you look at a capability that was developed by a major, a major company which, with really, really good AI capabilities for in-house hiring and sort of um, um, matching capabilities. So they, they were trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we ensure that we're getting the right people that, that are going to be successful at our company? We already sort of know the profile of successful people at our company. And so they started feeding, you know, their, their, uh, their capabilities with the resumes and the expertise of the people that had been successful to date at their company. Well, what happened over time is they realized that the recommendations that they were then getting back were completely sort of were very were very biased because their hiring to date had happened to only be sort of a singular kind of um, white male demographic with a certain kind of background, certain experience, certain you know educational. Um, you know, qualifications. And so the, the model, the algorithm was actually at the end doing things like if it saw a college like Bryn Mawr or a women's, you know, a women's college, basically filtering that out and saying that person's not going to be successful here, right? So that's an example, a sort of real life application of, of bias. You want to avoid obviously that type of bias. Um, when you talk about ethics, you want to talk about how the system is designed with the values that we have, certainly as a country, um, and, 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 and in the Department of Defense or the United States government in mind. Um, you want to ensure that it is designed um, in such a way that is going to um, underscore our, our continued focus and our legal framework on you know, privacy and civil liberties. You want to ensure that it is designed um, to, again, sort of not um, adversely impact uh, uh, you know, specific classes of people, no matter how you define those classes, um, and, 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 and that kind of um, thing for ethics. Um, sorry, you asked about a third one. Explainable. Explainable. Right. So at the end of the day, this is another really key component of responsible AI. You want not only the people that are sort of technically involved in the development or deployment or testing of the systems, but you want the end users of whatever is coming out of that system to understand how that system was developed to be able to sort of you know, corroborate that it's not in fact biased and that it is kind of upholding those ethical principles. You want, you know, in, in a military application, you want an operator or a, or a commander or an acquisition professional to be very comfortable with the fact that this is not what we sort of traditionally call a black box application where I don't know what's happening in the middle. I don't know why the sort of results are, are coming out um, the way that they are. And that is kind of, you know, all together that plus some other things that I think we'll talk about hopefully later in the podcast 
um, to include the types of humans that you actually want defining these boundaries from a responsible AI perspective, the education that goes behind them, and then the technology itself, all of those things together as an umbrella comprise what I, what I consider to be responsible AI. Beautiful, thank you. So based on your experience in the Jake, do you see there being consensus on what responsible AI is within the Department of Defense? So it's a funny question. Um, in order for there to be consensus on anything, there has to be understanding of it. And what I would say is the first part that we haven't fully, fully figured out yet, but that I think this memo that you referenced at the beginning, you know, um, is, is driving towards, and a lot of efforts that are underway are driving towards, is generating a wide enough understanding of everything that we just talked about in terms of what comprises responsible AI and what needs to be done in order to assure responsible AI practices and principles are being operationalized. Um, once we have that sort of solid understanding, which includes uh, education campaign, it includes sort of practical applications of the principles, it includes governance, a sort of governance structure, um, in this case within the department or sort of more, more broadly potentially within international community from an AI ecosystem perspective. Once that happens, I believe that we can come to some level of consensus. Do I think that there will ever be complete consensus about what comprises responsible AI? Maybe not, but I think that we can get close enough such that we are all comfortable with the sort of parameters in which we're working, if that makes sense. Mm, interesting. Absolutely. Um, I really love what you said up front about responsible AI being a mindset. Um, and I was just wondering if um, you really laid out everything well for us uh, in terms of what responsible AI is. Um, could you walk us through your experience specifically with responsible AI? Um, particularly when you were at the Jake, what major trends and shifts did you notice um, from the inception all the way through what we're seeing today with Jake 2.0? Yeah, I I would say that I had the privilege of learning about this mindset and and sort of starting my own journey towards its adoption um, with a lot of help um, from a lot of really sort of key stakeholders and champions and innovators both within the department, such as I want to sort of shout out to, you know, Ms. Alka Patel, who's the chief of responsible AI at the Jake, Dr. Jane Pinellas, who's the chief of test and evaluation. They work very closely together, but also industry leaders, right? One of the reasons that I decided that I was really um, eager to come and support Calypso is because of the way that Neil, you know, your CEO and, and the, the whole team here kind of think about these practices and want to ensure um, that, that the sort of public-private partnership is being generated in such a way that it, it adheres to these principles and ensures their oper operationalization across the board. So my experience with Responsible AI was one of, you know, I was a Luddite. I didn't, I didn't, I knew very little about AI, much less Responsible AI when I got to the Jake. Um, and like I said, it was a privilege to start learning about it. I knew what I didn't know, which was a lot. Um, and I had a really important role, I think, at the Jake, first in my hat as chief performance officer and then as the acting deputy director for most of my time there, actually. Um, and I knew that I needed to understand it um, um, enough to drive the organization forward and, and ensure the support of the organization and the DODAI sort of principles writ large. But I also knew that I didn't want to become an expert because 
by doing so, I actually thought that I would sort of inadvertently bias my own thinking, right, in, in this space, which I think is a really interesting kind of place to be. And that's why I love the idea that, and responsibly, I actually needs, and this is kind of where we, we ended up with Jake 2.0, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, Responsible AI in particular, AI in general, but responsible AI in particular necessitates a cross-functional approach. It, it needs people that are experts in the technology. It needs people that are AI ethicists, just as an example. It needs people that are acquisition professionals and operators um, and data scientists and policy, you know, SMEs. It needs all of those things in order to sort of generate the most, I think, profound and sustainable results. Um, Jake 2.0 was really kind of a reflection of the realization of, of two things from, from an AI perspective, and then I'll talk about the res responsible AI perspective. From an AI perspective, it was a reflection of the fact that in Jake 1.0, right, the stand-up of the organization where we were really testing and using the Jake as kind of a, almost a prototype for the, for the, for the department itself, um, we were learning. And we were failing cheaply and quickly, just as Congress and the department intended. Um, but we were learning a lot, and we were trying to templatize those learnings and export those learnings so that the rest of the department didn't, didn't have to also kind of learn those lessons the hard way. Jake 2.0 was really about the fact that we made some sort of key assumptions in Jake 1.0 about the readiness of the department to adopt AI and to operationalize things like the AI principles. Sorry, the responsible, the ethical AI principles. Um, and we were wrong, right? So we learned those lessons, right, the hard way. And Jake 2.0 was about sort of correcting for that and moving to a sort of different operating and business model within the Jake that would allow us to instead focus on building the foundations, whether those were technical foundations, policy foundations, cultural foundations, or educational foundations, such as teaching people about responsible AI, what that means, what that looks like in practice. Um, and part of what we did in Jake 2.0 in particular was elevate the portfolio that, that Alka runs, the Responsible AI portfolio, to report directly to the Jake Deputy Director. Now, if you kind of are, are watching you know, the, the, the messaging and, and things coming out of the department, what you'll see is Alka and, 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 and her very, very small team um, actually, I mean, certainly report to the Jake Deputy Director and the Director, um, but really are working almost directly on behalf of the DevSec Def at this point, um, which is really, um, I'm very, very glad to see that because as you pointed out, the Deputy Secretary of Defense has, and the Secretary have really signaled their intent to continue, um, you know, the work that was first outlined under the, you know, the previous um, uh, administration and, and Secretary and, and DevSec Def uh, in, I think, 2020. Um, when, when then Secretary Asper signed out the first kind of memo about the AI uh, ethical principles. And now this new department uh, leadership is signaling, just as the Hill has signaled, this is not political, this is just important to get right. We have to continue this and in fact is building on it. And what I love about um, the sort of evolution of Jake 1.0 to 2.0 and the parallel that we're seeing sort of in the DEFSECDEF's adoption and championship of these of these principles and their operationalization is that she too and her you know, team have really, I think, both realized and taken a hold of the fact that not only is this critical to do and get right, but it is really critical to start with that sort of educational component and awareness component um, such that people are really 
comfortable with what we mean by what we're saying here. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually sets me up really well for the next question that I was <laughs> going to ask you. Um, what should we be watching for as the Jake coordinates everything related to the responsible AI ecosystem? Um, what are some encouraging and exciting changes that Jake 2.0 has undertaken um, that especially in light of this memo that has come out that we should be watching for? Yeah, so I think, I think that we should be watching for two things. I think we should be watching for all communications effectively that have to do with AI to at least have an underpinning or allude to or explicitly call out the fact that responsible AI must be a part of every conversation. That's kind of one from a messaging perspective. That will um, continue, I think, to drive the, the understanding of how important this is to the leadership to sustain and to genuinely operationalize. The second, which goes very much hand in hand with that, is do the dollars match the narrative? And what I mean by that is oftentimes the department and the department, right, is, is <laughs> it was really easy for me to see when I was in a leadership role, leadership roles within the department, how difficult it is because the mission is so broad, right, across the board. It is incredibly difficult to prioritize um, what we do, what missions we take on, you know, how the dollars are spent, expended. But what I saw a lot, you know, not, you know, across the board over my 15 years-ish in, in government was that we would often sort of generate a lot of buzz about and messaging around and a huge kind of campaign around how important something was or is to a principal within the department, to Congress, to whomever, but then the dollars would not match that narrative. And to be very frank, in Washington, D.C., as you both know, if the dollars are not backing up what you're saying, then it's not actually a priority. And I want to be very clear and kind of on the record here, right? And I said this in my government hat, and I will say this here um, in my you know, private sector citizen hat. Um, I want to see, I expect to see, and we are hearing that we will see that the dollars are going to match this narrative. And that is what we should be looking for. Did I answer that question okay? Yeah, that was <laughs> fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So um, I'm curious what you think is the best sort of current example of, you know, who is implementing responsible AI well, um, you know, who, who currently is a good model for this? So it's funny, right, because you could ask this about almost any function within the department. Obviously, REI is kind of a newer um, both mindset and, and, and function uh, and, and mission set. Um, but almost in any case, what you're going to get is a huge kind of host of answers depending on how you're looking at a specific thing, right? If you're talking about missile defense, you could talk about a whole host of components that are doing this well, but differently based on their sort of mission parameters and needs. In this case, what I would say is I've observed um, a few components doing pieces of this really well. And this is the problem with the department because it is enormous and everything is kind of segmented into pieces. And yet responsible AI, as we talked about earlier, cannot be 
singular pieces that are kind of woven together. They have to kind of be at the outset an integrated cross-functional kind of approach, right? So from a technical perspective, thinking about the actual you know, technol technological needs behind responsible AI practices and operationalization, I think DIU is doing a fantastic job. Um, I've seen, you know, a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, messaging that they're putting out. I, I, I see a lot of the, the contracting that they're kind of working with industry partners on. And I think that they're really thinking about this um, smartly and thoughtfully. And that makes sense given their mission space and given the fact that they sort of are, you know, a subordinate component to, to R&E, research and engineering. Um, the Air Force and the Army have both, I would say, kind of put their money where their mouths are in a really meaningful way by hiring and, and, and generating some content about the fact that they are hiring AI ethicists or people that are sort of going to kind of run this space. There is not a lot of um, standard training for these uh, positions at yet, especially not for sort of military applications. There's some in the service schools, there's some in kind of private sector universities. But I think just the, just the fact of taking a billet or several billets um, and hiring into them the people that are designated to be fully focused on this is a signal in and of itself. And that's really important. In fact, both of those components, Army and Air Force, both of the services are standing up, I believe, responsible AI um, kind of offices, small ones or cells, but they're sort of moving in that direction. Which also means, which I think is important, that they are repurposing money that was not otherwise kind of um, allocated originally for this purpose. And that's how important they think it is and know it is. Um, the Jake really is the only um, component that has this kind of holistic focus on it by design, by virtue of where it sits, by virtue of its uh, its mandate and mission, um, and I think Alka, you know, though though she though she has sort of a, a smaller team at this point, has really been kind of um, just dead focused um, with with no distraction and no de deviation on ensuring that the way in which DIU and Air Force and Army and everybody else is kind of making inroads here are doing those things are part of a greater whole such that nobody kind of goes off the rails by themselves and that we can ultimately kind of bring it all together in a whole of DOD and hopefully whole of government and, and, and whole of international partners um, kind of AI, AI ecosystem. The specifics that I would just point to from a Jake perspective in terms of what we're seeing that, that really give me a lot of confidence are the absolutely kind of inextricable links that we've made between responsible AI and acquisition practices. If you're following the trade winds kind of, you know, um, uh, release or, or beginnings, this kind of AI marketplace and ecosystem that the Jake is putting together to ensure that people across the department can um, procure different services um, on sort of universal contracts easily and quickly um, from industry and academic and nonprofit partners that have already been vetted for sort of their um, expertise in different fields and, and, and are well known in terms of their capability and demonstrations. Every single RFI and RFP that's coming out in terms of trade wins um, specifically talks to the import of responsible AI practices and challenges both industry and academic and nonprofit partners to 
tell the department what that actually means to them, which I think is really important because one of the things that I also think the department has historically not done particularly well is it mandates things, right? It says, hey, industry partner, you need to meet these specifications because they work for us. Well, guess what? Right now, if we want all these things to work and work as intended and work well, and this is obviously critically important to get right, especially in, in, in kinetic situations, um, these things have to work for both our industry partners uh, and our nonprofit and academic partners and for the government. It has to work from an IP perspective for our industry partners. It has to work from a cost model perspective, right? And so the fact that the way in which the Jake is going about this is a dialogue, a consistent dialogue, and, 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 and one that sort of is, is trying to ensure that there is learning happening across, across industries and across um, you know, public and private, I think is absolutely the right model because what they're saying is, and this, and this, hopefully this is kind of what is being interpreted, DOD is effectively saying, we don't know all the answers. Help us figure out what the answers are because that's the only way that we're going to be successful. No, that's great. Um, I want to jump back for a moment, back to the RAI, RAI memo itself. What makes this different from previous efforts? Yeah, I think a couple things. I think, as I alluded to earlier, a you know, and this is this is the department does a really good job, I think, by by and large, of maintaining sort of an apolitical status, which is very difficult in Washington D.C. Um, having worked on the Hill, and I know you you both have as well. Like, I think um, I think it's difficult, right, in this in this uh, environment. But the department really does strive to maintain its, you know, of, of necessity, um, apolitical, nonpartisan, you know, we're just kind of mission focused. That being said, the majority of leadership in the department, right, is political appointees. So from administration to administration, one of the things that I've noticed over time is that a lot of people try to almost pendulum swing back the other way on a, on a specific issue almost irrespective of how they actually feel about the issue, honestly. It's unfortunate, it's the reality of the world that we live in. In this case, one of the things that I think is different is what I said earlier. This OSD leadership team doubled down on what the previous OSD leadership team and the previous administration said about Responsible AI. And not just did they double down, but they reinforced it and then added to it, which I think is even more important. They didn't just sort of, you know, uh, check the box and re-sign the memo, which they could have easily done. They recommitted to the exact same principles, the wording did not change at all, and then they added, and here's what it's gonna to take to actually get to implementation. So that's one sort of key distinct difference. And they easily, right, in sort of, in this political environment, they easily could have gone the other way. It's a key difference and it signals to me that not only is this legitimately important, um, they're willing to almost expend political capital to do it. The second thing that I think is 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 a different different about this than than previous efforts um, is is the fact that it again goes that sort of step further. It talks about what it's going to take to operationalize, what it's going to take to get to implementation, and most importantly, and this is what we almost never see, there is built-in accountability. And I know that this was very very important to both the Jake team um, and the CDO team, the Chief Data Officer team, and the DevSecDevs team. Um, I think that everybody has sort of fully recognized this is one of those areas that we can't just talk about doing it the right way. We have to actually make sure that it is being done the right way because literally 
lives will be at stake if we don't. Um, and so the fact that there are timelines, the fact that there are built-in you know, groups to tackle specific components of this and get to X metric or X objective, I think is a difference. Now the, tr the, the proof will be in the pudding and what, what that means is, will we see in August or whatever the timeline is that they've met the sort of initial intent and then what is next? It, will it be a box check? I really don't think so, to be very honest, which I'm very happy to, to report. Um, but it's but it's possible, right? So, but I think those are the sort of three key differences between this and previous uh, memos. Yeah. Do you think that there's is there an aspect from your perspective of the memo that hasn't received the attention or the coverage that it's that it deserves? You know, I I think that it really is that accountability piece, um, and I think I think one of the things that I would like to just kind of put on the record for, for all intents and purposes is sometimes externally when people look into the department or into sort of federal agencies and they see memos like this or they see timelines that potentially were missed, what they don't necessarily see is the fact that the leadership that was either champion, championing or directing those things has turned over or there's sort of a new political paradigm or whatever else. So the context I think is really important both in which the memo such as this was written and, and when it is able to be effectively kind of implemented. Um, I, think that the, I think that in terms of the articles that I have seen and followed, there seems to be a lot of focus on the fact that previous um, efforts to operationalize and get to implementation uh, were missed from a timeline perspective. Arguably, they weren't nearly as well defined, I think, as they are now which I think is an important distinction. But the other reality is um, the Jake didn't have a responsible AI lead. Uh, it hadn't been elevated in terms of it, the, the, the import of the portfolio and the sort of direct reporting relationship. Um, and, and so I think that there's just kind of context that's missing. And so what I would say is I hope that press really focuses now on the fact that we have another shot and arguably, we have the right people in place at the right time to actually make this a reality. Um, then if it doesn't happen again, we can have a discussion about why. Um, but I really think that at this point, previous efforts potentially were inadvertently thwarted by a sort of context that is missing from the press. Interesting. So you said something in there that I want to pull the thread on a little bit. So you mentioned that the responsible AI memo is, you know, Dr. Hicks and the Biden administration really reaffirming the the 2020 um, AI ethics principles. Um, so that's, you know, the responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable AI. Which ethical principle do you think is least understood across the department? So it's funny because I think if you if you if you took a look at those words, um, you would immediately discount responsible. You think, well, it's responsible AI, right? So that's the one that's probably going to be best understood. I would actually argue the opposite. I think it is actually responsible that is the least well understood, and the reason for that is because the other ones sort of are con conceptually kind of fairly 
concrete to grasp, right? Equitable talks about sort of testing for bias like we talked about before. Um, traceable talks about ensuring that there is documentation and education as you are developing and as you are learning from the way in which the development is kind of performing. Reliable talks about the sort of technical aspects of security and safety and how you are building those assurances in. Governable talks about you know designing it properly so that you can put in fail-safes and you can actually shut it down um, or, or alter it if necessary. But responsible, the words surrounding responsible as a principle specifically talk about appropriate levels of judgment and care, which is really nuanced, right? Um, because that's very subjective. Um, it is also entirely different based on the role that a person that has to um, exercise those appropriate levels of judgment and care is in at the time of either designing, developing, deploying, or, or, or using the system, and it is also based on the context in which that system is being designed, developed, deployed, or used. Um, and so I think that responsible is the one that potentially seems obvious, just given the actual word itself, but that really necessitates more nuanced, deeper, meaningful conversations about what that's going to look like in practice, how you even gauge whether or not people are, are, are applying those appropriate levels of judgment and care. How do you measure that? And how do you determine um, what appropriate means in those different roles and in those different contexts? Mm. So which tenet of the responsible AI memo do you think is going to require the most innovative thinking? Do you have any ideas about this? And as a reminder to the tenets are RAI governance, warfighter trust, AI product and acquisition lifecycle, requirements validation, responsible AI ecosystem, AI workforce, um, any of your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think two of the tenants are gonna require the most innovative thinking. Um, one is probably fairly obvious, which is warfighter trust. Um, and the reason for this, again, is that trust is difficult to earn, difficult to maintain, and what does that actually mean in practice? How do you ensure that you are designing in such a way that you are um, designing with the end user, both not only in mind, but integrated into the process of, of the design itself? And basically ensuring that that education is there, that understanding, that, that comfort is there, and ensuring that you actually know who the end users are, um, especially if you design for a specific end user, but then you end up changing the context or the application of that capability. So how do you think about all of those things, I think is a really complex, almost um, systems engineering problem, frankly, that, that we're gonna have to think very innovatively about. Um, and and, and you know, just, just kind of underscore one more thing about that, not only ensuring that hopefully the totality of the end user stakeholders or bases are, are sort of integrated at the outset and throughout the life cycle of development and tests and deployment. But also, if they're not, if an end user has to sort of get comfortable very quickly, trust very quickly, be assured very quickly at the end that they can actually quickly and meaningfully digest enough of the information that we have kind of pre-staged, identified, documented, such that they feel confident in the decision that, the decision that they're making about the, the deployment of that application. And then the other tenant that I think is going to require really, really innovative thinking, and this is the one that actually is really exciting to me, honestly, is the RAI ecosystem. And the reason for that is because 
the Department of Defense, our, our federal partners, our state and local partners, our industry partners, and our you know, allied international partners are all going to have to come up with answers in terms of how we're thinking about this, how we're going to approach these things, how we're going to work together on these things. But as we've seen, because the world is the world, we're all going to come up with at least slightly different answers because we all have different reasons for the answers that we will ultimately kind of come up with. And so there's going to have to be innovative thinking to ensure that there is enough alignment and room for interoperability. And I mean technical interoperability, linguistic interoperability, cultural interoperability, workforce interoperability, that we can actually work together as, as needed, um, but be really cognizant of the fact that France and the US and India and Singapore and, you know, an industry partner and an academic partner are just not going to, nor are they incentivized to define or use these principles in the exact same way every single time. And so thinking about the regulatory space, which has not been fully defined, not even close, um, about the operation, operationalization of these principles, especially across international borders, I think is going to be both intriguing and really exciting, but also really important to be innovative about and get right. Nice. So Calypso AI focuses on building trust in machine learning systems through testing, evaluation, validation, and verification, so that TEB and B. Mm -hmm. So Warfighter Trust really stood out to us here. But beyond providing capabilities and a framework to get there, what do we need to do to overcome any hesitation or preconceived notions that warfighters may have so that they feel confident in their systems? So I think we need to do two things. And one of those things is actually going to potentially reverse part of this question. One of the things is we have to recognize that in this case, warfighters has a broader meaning than I think we traditionally use. Um, there are a lot of different people that are going to have to be very comfortable with these systems. Some of them are at the sort of you know pointy end of the sphere, as we like to say, um, the kind of operational end users in, in tactical environments. Some of them are the Secretary of Defense or a member of Congress or an international partner you know, or an ambassador, right? The range of people that are going to have to, in different roles, with different levels of technical expertise, with different um, cultural predispositions, the range of people that are going to have to trust, are going to have to be assured, all of the words that you want to use, is almost infinite, right? It's almost all, all it's almost all of us um, at some level. And so I think that reframing the conversation, um, if we're talking about the Department of Defense, to ensure that it is a broader conversation, that we're not excluding, inadvertently, but excluding the HR professional, the acquisition professional, the finance professional, you know, from the operators and even the senior leaders is the first sort of critical step in both talking about this and ensuring that the education is broad enough that it covers all those different people and the case studies cover all those different use cases. That's the first part. And then the second part, again, is I think we've, we've touched on it quite a bit throughout this, um, this discussion, is just 
that continued education. And education has to not just be right videos that you can watch or things you can read or a class you can go to. I think there's going to have to be a lot of that. And I know that there are a lot of different components within the department and industry partners that are really working diligently on generating that course content. I would actually sort of give a shout out to both representatives Larson and Langevin, who are incredibly passionate about this area, ensuring sort of educational um, uh, AI literacy, digital literacy of our of our force, uh, particular military service members, but then sort of like the translation across that with with our industry partners, our academic partners. Um, this is something that Congress is focused on. This is something that the National Security Commission on AI focused on quite a bit. This is something that Jake is trying to focus on with personnel, um, OUSD, uh, PNR. Um, so the educational piece, but expanding, again, the aperture on what, what education looks like. And the one thing that I would point to as a best practice that I, that I had the, the great privilege of, of, of getting myself was the Jake under AUKUS leadership piloted a Responsible AI Champions cohort. The first one was piloted last year. Um, 15 very cross-functional people across the Jake in terms of very different roles from the most kind of, you know, the line data scientist to myself as the acting deputy director, um, all works together for a nine-week experiential educational course. Um, and what we ended up getting to do was go through applications, case studies, et cetera, for nine full weeks um, and, and, and and get to actually do this all together and learn together and figure out what operation, operationalization of these principles look like all together. And so experiential learning applications like that, I think, need to um, be exported wholesale and developed even further. And as many people from cross-functional backgrounds as possible need to be invited to participate in them, both to ensure the sort of standardization of the lexicon and the understanding of responsible AI across the department in this case and, and, and broader applications and other, and to ensure that the people that are going to be making those decisions actually understand each other and understand each other's context and the nuances about each other's roles and mission sets so that we can generate something that's really comprehensive and sustainable. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Jacqueline. We really appreciate it, and this was really, really insightful. Um, My yeah, pleasure. Thank really you so much for the great questions. They're phenomenal questions, and I and I hope that I hope that people sort of ask more questions and continue to ask questions and continue to come to the Jake and Calypso and others for sort of you know answers as they evolve. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Cyberstream. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can head over to calypsoai.com to read Jacqueline's blog post or join in on the discussion on our social media. We are everywhere at Calypso AI.